Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act, juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Enough chatting behind the scene. We have to get on stage. We're not. I think we've recorded two podcasts at this point. We're, we're not Guns and Roses that we can make people. We never press the red button for an hour before rolling in. Thank you, Axel, for making me wait so many times. Okay, here we are, Redefining Society podcast. Once upon a time, tomorrow, we sometimes lose somebody on the way uh today is scary we don't know in what he's, what part of the a, world he's is. already in tomorrow it's already in tomorrow so maybe he we'll is. catch up with him as he's, we go exactly he's maybe time we'll... traveling ahead of us <laughs> uh i was just re-watching uh, i'm doing like an harry potter marathon actually and uh there is a, at a certain point, the prisoner of Azkaban, where they have the, the time uh, traveling episode, and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Only way that uh, Hermione can take multiple lessons is just go jump back and forth in time, so she can take more lessons. I would have done the opposite when I was a kid. I would Skip have skipped. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I would have used the time travel tool to skip the lesson. Uh, completely not to take more lessons so get me get me out of here anyway uh it's already a good start we're talking about weird stuff uh rafael and sean and myself and carrie wherever you are uh we hope you're having a good time so what do we talk about is uh we don't know we've been trying to decide because there is so much that we can talk about Many fascinating things happening in the world of technology. But I think we are very excited when we meet the three, the four of us to talk about entertainment. We talk about music, we talk about videos, 
movies, uh, usually AI comes into place. Um, Carrie and I talk about privacy. That was a little bit more less uh, related to entertainment, but on social media. And today we're curious. We want to take advantage of Raphael and his knowledge of all the video game industry and world. And it's not necessarily anymore my cup of tea. I think the last game I played was Myst <laughs> a long time ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know, Sean, I don't, aren't you curious to know where we're standing with uh, virtual re reality metaverse, touching things that are not there, optics? You know, I, I was just thinking Pong. I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to remember, did, did you actually get haptic feedback in Pong? I'm trying, I don't did it, um, was there ever a version that had that? No, but I do that when I play tennis. <laughs> I get a real good feedback or yeah. paddle, ping pong. Uh, I'll give you some feedback. <laughs> a real one. Pong. I don't think that was that back in the days. Could you have done that, Raphael? Could you have had on pong in the, in the 70s, 80s? the 80s, whatever <laughs> that was? <clears throat> no, no. I, I, back in the day with pong, we were happy just to have uh, – uh, two dials and, and and little lines that move right. back and forth. <laughs> uh, that was exciting. Yeah, that 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 was that was the beginning. Is was uh, yeah, two lines that can move back and forth, and 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 a few pixels for for a, for a ball, and 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 we were fascinated. <laughs> why why do you think that is? I was just wondering. I mean, why why would we not go outside to play? Now maybe there might be weather reasons or whatever, but. It might be dark, but <clears throat> what, what would two lines in a, in a box <laughs> bouncing around do to us that uh, <laughs> keeps us a, attracted to it? Um, so I, I think part of it is, is <clears throat> that, I mean, we're, we're tool users. We, we like making constructions. You know, we're humans as primates, as monkeys. We, we like to sit down and make things with our hands and then go like, look at that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I love going to the, um, th there's there's a, uh, the Musée Mécanique um, in downtown San Francisco over by the Fisherman's Wharf that has old, you know, old, old, not just old video games and old arcade games, but like the original kind of notion of an arcade game where they were mechanical constructions. And, and, and that's the thing is like, if you roll back to that, like even before we could do things that were electronic, we were doing mechanical constructions because while it was good to have bigger things that we could wander around and look at, you know, the notion of, of a ski ball or an air hockey table um, or just, you know, throwing a dart, um, those things got kind of compartmentalized into mechanical constructions because humans like to play. Um, that that notion of play is is core to to games, and and it's oftentimes can you give people guidelines or kind of a signpost for what the play is, and and, and that's really what what pong is. It's going okay. We're going to take this core notion that you understand from tennis or ping pong, and we're going to bring it over here. And part of it is we're fascinated fascinated then by that abstraction of going like, oh, okay, now it looks like this and I have to do it in this particular way. And then there's the challenge of doing it. <laughs> it makes sense. F funny story, Sean and I, every time we go to San Francisco, usually for our state conference, <laughs> we make a stop in that so, uh, museum. And we have some serious games of pinball. 
And uh, nice, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's some weird stuff in there too. I have to oh, say. Oh, there's some weird. Stuff. There is. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is, you know, like some of it is, you know, you, you have like the games of weight where you've got to, you know, hit a hammer on a thing, and and some of it is just, some of it is just the equivalent of like a, a kaleidoscope where you're you're just looking at something, but there there's the realization, you know, that those early kaleidoscope things some of those were analogous to, you know, to, to that notion of, of a penny arcade. You know, you, you drop a penny and you get to look at something and it might be something risque or shocking or, or banal, but it's just, it's a distraction. And, and that's another form of I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw another thing here that made, it came in my mind because now I, I am visually in my head inside the arcade and <laughs> there is a fortune tellers like you see in the movie Big, right? And you you have the horse racing, you have a lot of things. And then you, you get ahead of time and you have the, the game that I used to play, you know, the Atari game, the video games in the in the bar and the arcade, the, the, the little cars that go around, they're still pixel, right? But you got the wheel. And I'm thinking the the magic element of this, the, the yeah, we like to play game. But I think the idea that if you want to still talk about Pong, that you are actually able to move with a little, a little mechanism and uh, the something that is not physical, it's in a video, is in the TV, I, and you don't understand exactly how it works, but it's fascinating. It's almost magic. So, yeah. Any it's a suspension of disbelief. Um, you know, like one, one of those one of those racing games that they have, and and it's it's funny because it's it's working in reverse, is is one where you know they they've got a little physical toy car that's right in front of you that doesn't actually move except to, to you know shift back and forth slightly to show its angle, and then they've got a scrolling physical scrolling screen like be, you know effectively before the notion of um of pixels and tvs you know you've got a a scrolling you know like painted screen that comes in front of the car so that the car is supposed to move to that screen mm -hmm. um, it's all about that suspension of disbelief it's it's you know it's creating an illusion and if anything it ties in, in a way, to bits of vaudeville and theater. And it's this notion of, of we're going to put on entertainment. It's a presentation. It's in front of you. And we're going to use whatever tools we currently have to make that. You know, the, the notion that our current mediums of TV and animation and film and music and games all come out of how can we entertain each other. And it reminds me of another game that I, I don't know if I ever had it. I have one now because I went back to get it when I bought it. The uh, the Coleco Norelco football game where, I mean, it, you kind of knew how it was going to go and you'd reach a certain point and I wasn't very good at it. So I, I'd always bomb out fairly early. But even still, the it's just little dots on the screen. Granted, I'm hand-holding it now, but it's little dots. There's a little bit of sound. And even if I sucked at it, I, I was mesmerized, right? And it, it's not like a computer screen or a television screen where something's projected. It's just little dots. But even still, it, it took me, to your point, took me away 
and into a different place, right? Where that's what I was thinking about. Whatever's on my mind before is out. <laughs> I'm just I'm just worried or trying to figure out how do I move my thumbs fast enough in the right way in anticipation to uh, to avoid these dots and and get my pass off to the uh, to the receiver. You know, son, is using the imagination. I mean, now mm -hmm. I go back to when we were kids. We will be fascinated by Formula One. We will draw with the chalk uh, on the on the floor a circuit from a Formula One. And then with the caps of bottles, uh, we will just flip them around, and those were the cars. And then you just kick the cup around. And I, I remember there were hours of fun <laughs> by doing that. We knew that they were not Formula One car. It wasn't Ferrari. It wasn't Renault. But who cares? We were having just a good time, and we were projecting ourselves in there. Now just to jump in our modern day, it seems like in order for us to really do these things, and I don't know today's kids, but when I start thinking about virtual reality, uh, is it because we can't use that imagination anymore or is it because it's just bring it to a completely new level of abstraction and make it more real? I think that we have a wider range now. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up, um, you know, I, I grew up playing with, you know, Star Wars action figures. I, I was part of that, that generation where I saw Star Wars in the theater and then mm -hmm. was basically like, I want those. <laughs> and, you know, my brother and I played and, you know, set up, you know, elaborate, you know, stories and, and battles and things with our collected, you know, Star Wars and G.I. Joe action figures. Um, and in that era, you know, was going to the, uh, the, the arcades uh, back in Seattle. And, um, you know, I, I, I loved going to the arcade and just kind of exploring what was there and seeing all of the potential. Um, as we, like, as the game industry has grown, and we've had this range of expression from PC to console to mobile to VR and bits of early AR. At the same time, yeah, we have you know this greater and greater fidelity. And you can look at like uh, Call of Duty or similar, and you have you know hundred million plus budgets and all this attempt. You know, Spider-Man Two just came out, and um, uh, I think two days ago, and it's probably going to be the big one of the biggest games of the year, and it looks like a movie. But at the same time, keep in mind that the biggest game in the world right now is Minecraft. Um, Minecraft has a billion people playing it, which doesn't look like a movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that's the thing is is that that or, or Roblox, like Roblox, you know it's increasing the fidelity and what the engine can do, but there's a contingent within Roblox that always likes the classic, what they call Bloxy style. Um, and, and, and it's part of the same reason that people still love Minecraft and Minecraft is still um, one of the most popular games is because, because you can invest your imagination in it. And sometimes it's useful. Like it's, it's good to kind of think back to characters that can be iconic you know, you, you look at Mario and you look at the beginning of Mario and it's this, you know, character with a cap, you know, like you have the, this tiny array of pixels and it's just a character with a cap and a mustache and kind of portly and overalls. 
there's an iconicism when you have simplicity in presentation that makes that oftentimes carry much longer ahead um, for a Mario or a Sonic or other characters of that era. And it's part of why you sometimes still have people making things in that style, that kind of 8-bit style, because they understand that there's something elemental of, about that. Is it is that science or is it uh, nostalgia <laughs> or both? Do we know? Is it, is it is it just that's the brand, so we we keep using it and people love it? it and it's generations. Partially, it's partially nostalgia. Um, like you know, Roblox has been around since two thousand five. There are now folks who literally grew up playing Roblox, so they like that Bloxy style. You know. Minecraft debuted in 2009, but it, I, I think that it's more than that, that I, I think that with a bunch of our entertainment, we're, we're finding that, that there are different styles and kind of different fidelities where animation, for example, can be much more detailed, but you still have, you, know, you still have points where people specifically make a cruder animation style, you know, South Park could be could have evolved and got more detailed, but it works just the way it is. Um, it, it's kind of funnier to have the characters be crude than than, than not. You know, another example I give you is I you know Halloween just went by. I don't know when I'm going to publish this, but I'm not really good at publishing lately. But uh, you know, Halloween was two days ago, and uh, it's a classic for me to watch The Nightmare Before Christmas, Tim Burton. I have to. It's my thing. And when you look at it now, it's already <laughs> old in a way. So you, you, it, it's the, the clay animation or, uh, you know, the movement that when you look at behind the scene, you literally have to move one piece of the arm, change the expression. I mean, it's a tedious thing to do, like or animation before computers. It was tedious redesigning, drawing every single action. I mean, Disney itself was obsessed with the fluidity of the image. It wasn't about jumping from one position to another. It was everything in between. And, but for me, when I look at that, I, I, I like the fact that it's kind of clumsy. I don't need that perfection. And as, a, as another example, Paul, when, uh, I don't know if you remember the Polar Express, when Tom Hanks was playing the the train uh, uh, chief guy and they pick up all the kids to go to the polar. And it was one of the first, I think, where they were really giving that 3D effect to, to the character. And people freaked out about that. They were like, wait a minute, this is going too real. This is not, I can't, I can't really qualify it as, classify it as animation, but it's not a movie. So it's kind of weird. And... And I'm wondering again if there is a place and time for that or the other. We maybe we need both. Maybe sometimes we do need to use our imagination a little bit more, and we can play with something that we need to connect the dots. Another time, uh, maybe I, don't, I haven't seen the Spider movie, but kind of sounds good and cool that I can play like if it was a real movie. Uh, right. No, no. I probably like both. That's my point. Yeah. And I, I think it's like, I think the best way to think of it is that we have a broader palette now that, that, than we did before. And, and, and we kind of, 
we kind of don't want to put the older paints away. We, we, we want all, all of those. And so you do have, you know, so like just by contrast, um, Avatar 2, I consider to be an animated movie. Um, you will have a hard time finding a, a single frame in Avatar 2 that is not 51% CGI or more. <laughs> um, you know, the, the reality is, is that, that there's a there was a lot of actual filming, but they layered over it so much that it's basically an animated movie. <clears throat> but at the same time, while you have this high fidelity, complex animated CGI, you know, one of my favorite animated shows right now is um, Star Trek The Lower Decks. And Star Trek The Lower Decks is a comedy, and it's not the only animated, you know, there's also Prodigy, which is a little bit more for kids. Star Trek The Lower Decks, they could have made as a, as a full-on Star Trek um, uh, live action series. Um, I think that they intentionally aimed it as an animated series because they wanted to make a Star Trek comedy where they took the, you know, red shirt ensigns and did a show about, you know, kind of the, all the junior cadets screwing up and making jokes and, and, and cracking wise at each other. But it kind of works better to have that be animated, both so that they can have the occasional, you know, crazy alien thing without blowing their budget, but also because they can have, like you're used, you're used to seeing wacky hijinks and crazy jokes from things like Looney Tunes. It, were, it, it makes sense. And Star Trek The Lower Decks, even though it's totally different, it feels similar in some ways to something like Rick and Morty. And you just go, okay, these are adult animation shows. Um, they're not really made for kids. Kids can potentially watch them, but there's a lot of hidden in-jokes. Star Trek The Lower Decks actually now is very heavily lore-based and makes tons of references to things all over Deep Space Nine and The Next Generation. So it's not just like a full-on comedy. It's trying to be a serious show that's also a comedy. And it works better for being an adult animated show than if it was like the comedy works better and it's in some cases easier to do than if they filmed it live action. Mm. And so I, as we were talking here, I'm, I'm thinking we're not all one person, right? Uh, so we're all, we're all unique and, and like different things, dislike different things. But at any moment in time, we are, different ourselves, right? Uh, we might be in a good mood, a bad mood, uh, upset, uh, in love, whatever, right? So you just pick, pick, a, pick an emotion or pick a current state and a desired state, and that may just decide or determine what we want to do next and how we, how we search for and absorb different types of entertainment. And so how are we, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, do we have the ability to create stuff that adapts to all of those different nuances, different audiences in a broad way or because we have technology? Um, whereas maybe in the past, a certain type of comedy delivered in a certain way, you're going you're gonna to limit your audience to 
to a subset of of humanity, right? Just they're not going to resonate with it. It's not the not the tone of the tone of the times, so it's not going to fit a particular audience. So, do we have a better chance now of being more dynamic to align with all of us? Yes, um, and and like some some at some points, people will talk about like the rise of genre fiction. Um, I think that a lot of it is like historically, if you look at film and TV, we've always had genre fiction. You know, you can go back to westerns or or gangster movies, um, but there's a range of fantasy and science fiction and superheroes that we didn't have a good way to illustrate um, in film and TV. We, we could in animation, um, but it was a lot harder to bring them into live action. Um, and, and, and frankly, it was often harder to, to bring them and illustrate them well, even in games, um, until we got the ability to render parts of them on, on screen, you know, whether it's pre-rendered or real-time rendered. Um, but it, it does feel like we have a wider range of expression. And in some cases that people are more, people who weren't as willing to, let's say, um, digest science fiction as a, you know, when it was a book um, that they needed to read or a magazine. Like I, I used to read, you know, Isaac Asimov science fiction magazine, and they would have fantastic short stories. Um, that reached a niche audience, but then it becomes Black Mirror, and a great many more people will watch Black Mirror than will read a science fiction magazine. Um, it becomes more accessible when, when genre fiction that needs illustration to showcase parts of the imagination then goes into film and TV because we can paint new pictures. I love it. I was, I was picturing the slee stack. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, <laughs> very, very realistic. <laughs> the slee stack. Um, seems like maybe we lost Marco's camera, but no, um, I'm here. I don't know what happened. Uh, yeah. That's uh, a much better view now. I know. Let's just leave the little thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is funny. It seems like I've done it. I've done looks, it on purpose. He looks more spelt. <laughs> I I think I've done it on purpose. Okay. Uh, there you go. No, no. It's not there. But this kind of helps me to make a point while I I'll talk while I try to figure out this thing. So not everybody is the same. It's uh, it's Sean said. Oh, look, I'm back. So some people like to, or maybe they can use their visual imagination more than other. Like some people see things when people talk. When I listen to a story, that's why I listen to Audible a lot, or I read. I just, I don't just read. I see stuff, right? So what I'm saying here is that some people may prefer consume something in a different way. And I think the point of the movie is that you're representing a reality already when it's there. And I think we had this conversation in the past where if you say, this is Sean's favorite story, it was a, a, a stormy, um, a dark and stormy night. There is a lot of way to represent that. And yeah, this was a, a conversation we had with uh, uh, Carrie and Raphael. 
but once you picture in your mind there could be lighting there could be other things there could be you know where is the location are there mountains or is this in a city i mean you don't say that with that sentence but the moment that a director put it in a scene or in a painting and you visualize it for other you you actually see it and everybody sees the same way now i personally don't like that much i like to see shit in my head <laughs> so <laughs> but I think that the fact that the Black Mirror may have captured more people than Isimov magazine, I can see this to be the point. And another one, Dungeons and Dragons. I just had a conversation with this guy, a fantastic storyteller. He creates these events for the community, the neurodiverse community. So he created these these events so where everybody's at ease and maybe people that normally wouldn't express themselves very well. He he plays the master in the Dungeons and Dragons and and uh, and and the kids start opening themselves and understanding and participating and telling the story, and that is just by moving the Dungeons and Dragons pieces. And there is not a you couldn't achieve that. What I'm saying with with a video game, probably. Um, so maybe mm -hmm. for everything and everybody, uh, depending on the situation, we it's good to have all this variety of storytelling technique that we can use. Yeah. Well, so I, I wanted to to jump on that specifically with Dungeons and Dragons because um, you know that that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I, I started um, playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, as a kid um, back in, in Seattle, where um, my parents sent me to summer camp uh, one year, and I think I was about seven, um, seven, eight, and um, one of the older kids at the summer camp uh, organized, you know, it was like, basically, here, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. I was like, What's that? <laughs> um, and it was done as a around the camp, like literally around the campfire, where it was an interactive storytelling session. You know, the the kid hadn't brought his you know his rule books and his dice, but you know what he did was he boiled it down to its most elemental parts, where he was the dungeon master, the game master. And he told us a story and we were, you know, literally around the fire, you know, around the campfire. And he explained the basics of like, okay, you're going to be this character. You're going to be that character. And so like we immediately got, you know, kids understand role-playing right away mm -hmm. because, you know, and, and the notion of like, okay, you're going to role-play an adult, a big person, you know, like you, you get that as a kid, you know, kids do dress up and you're like, okay, now I'm going to be an adult. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like the notion of like, okay, I'm, we're going into a movie together, and you're telling us, and we get to talk about what we do. That notion of interactive storytelling, purely using our imagination, where he didn't even have, you know, the dice or a, a, any figurines or anything other than his words, I got immediately. Mm -hmm. And just after. And I connected that into another thing that I experienced early on, which was um, that um, my father was a music professor and he um, 
he would periodically have a uh, Ghanaian master drummer uh, come up from Portland and, and he would organize concerts uh, through the Seattle Arts Commission. And uh, so a family friend was a master drummer named Obo Ade. Um, and Obo would uh, go and perform. Um, and my dad would usually film it. And then he would come back to the house and hang out um, you know, before driving back to, to Portland, maybe the next day. And he would always tell us stories. He would, you know, he, he would tell us stories of like Anansi the Spider and others, but he would tell us Ghanaian folk tales. And, um, but it wasn't just, you know, it, he, under, he understood at a core the notion of call and response. Um, when he was telling us stories, myself and my brother, he would ask us questions and he would incorporate that in. And it was very clear the correlation between folk tales done in a traditional African style and Dungeons and Dragons boiled down to its basic elements of, I say something, what do you want to do? Okay, this, let me incorporate that in. Let me change the story a little bit, allow it to grow. And it builds in the imagination more. And every, and you, the storyteller keeps the attention of the audience by that call and response and by incorporating things and by growing it together, it becomes a conversation. Um, games have that at, at, at a core. They, it's just a question of, do they paint in 8-bit? Do they paint in, you know, uh, a early, you know, 16 or 32-bit? Do they paint in, you know, 4K? Um, there, there's a range of detail that they can have, but, and, and if anything, like we've gotten used to different stylizations and we've got comfortable that they are locked in. We have literary genres, but we also have expressions of particular style. You go like, this is stop motion. You know, this is 8-bit. You know, for animation, you go like, oh, I want to see something that looks like Wallace and Gromit. I want to see the physicality of that and I care about it and I want to hear a story in that world of Wallace and Gromit or Chicken Run. And it feels right because you see the physicality and you see the lighting on the models and you know that they're physically real. Mm. You, you can look at a style of one thing or another or, or an old arcade game in, in 2D and you can go, I'm immersed in that world and I'm fully in it, I'm invested. I have that suspension of disbelief, whether it's stop motion, you know, it, it can be enter the Spider-Verse and it's crazy 3D with shaders, or it can be stop motion with simple clay models, but you go into that world. But at its core, it's still, it's storytelling. Someone sat down in front of you in a bedroom, at a campfire, in a living room and said, let's weave a story together. Um, mm. that's something that I always carry with me is that anytime that we're making entertainment, we're weaving stories. So I want, I want to, so let's, let's assume it's a phenomenal story. Um, but I want to experience that story in a different way. I feel like we're approaching a time where I can turn a dial. I want to see this story in eight bit. <laughs> and, <laughs> with uh, mono uh, speakers, or I want to dial it up to 8K with Dolby. I don't know what the highest Dolby is now at this point, but all the way up at the other end from an audio perspective as well. And I, I feel that 
the technology is like right there. I mean, we see it in, we can take some audio piece and translate in different languages. We can take a sample image and translate that into different styles of, of a picture. Um, and it's nothing new, right? We've taken full, full color frame uh, photos and made them black and white or sepia to get a, get a different feeling for the same image, right? So uh, are we at a point where we'll be able to choose the experience, not just the story? Choose your own story? <laughs> choose your own adventure. <laughs> we, we, we have some of that. Um, and, and, and that's the thing is we have some of that right now, but it, it's not a thing. Like it, it, It's an intentional choice that has to be made by the developers. Um, so like a, a good example is um, there's a classic game called Karateka. Um, it's an old, old school um, uh, game. And I think they've actually done this with Karateka and Prince of Persia, where they, you, you could basically tap and toggle buttons back and forth to go between the original graphics and, and the updated graphics, where, where they have the classic of those games from the 80s. And then you know, they, they did effectively like a criterion collection for Karateka, so that you have like the original you know, early 80s version, you have the, the modified, um, you know, 2020s version, and you can, you, you can e even just like this one, that one, this one, that one, back and forth, um, just, just to sort of see the same thing in motion and see that notion of like, what does a new modern paint over that's still in 2D look like compared to that original thing? Um, in a slightly different vein, there's a classic um, 90s um, pre-rendered FMV game called Seventh Guest. Um, as oh, yeah. Seventh Guest was kind of around the same time as like Mist and Phantasmagoria. Yeah. Um, they just remade Seventh Guest uh, as, as a VR uh, game. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's very much someone has to sit down and build it. And you know, that's not a case of, you know, going back and forth. That's, you know, there was a, an FMV game that I think came on six CDs. <laughs> and then, you know, you have this remake that now is, you know, you put a headset on and you, you know, you walk around in it. Uh, and you walk around in that same mansion. Uh, let, let's reconnect the dots. We started with the virtual reality. We never really got into that. And, and we went, of course, all the way back. So let's let's connect that. So nowadays, you just brought an example of you put your virtual reality goggle, you walk inside the environment, you can maybe toggle between one um, one style and another. Uh, what else can you do now with uh, the actual gloves? And what is your feeling, your sensation? Is it also I'm curious, it's, it's becoming more accessible or are we looking at the $3,000 Apple to be? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I, so we're, we're still in a period of growth. Like the, the, the way that I often try to describe it to people is that um, 2D, um, you know, we've gotten to the point of where we've really mastered uh, two-dimensional graphics. We can show anything that we want to. Uh, in 3D, we, we can actually show almost anything that we want to. Um, you know, like it, the 
the Enter the Spider-Verse movie just as, as a movie is so mind-blowingly past something like Toy Story because it's a 3D movie, but you've got all of this visual effect and shader work. And, you know, it looks like as he's moving around in different parts of kind of a multiverse that there are different styles. Like they go into different worlds and they have different rendering styles. We could, we could, we could draw that as a comic, you know, 30 years ago, but we couldn't even think of building that. Um, and, and so, um, in this kind of XR realm of like VR and AR, there we're still kind of in the 8-bit era. <laughs> that, that's probably the best way to think of it is, is that XR needs another 30 years. Um, you know, now in games, we've gone from, you know, Pong to Mario to Super Mario 64 to, you know, crazy Call of Duty um, and, and Fortnite. But in XR, um, we've still got these small productions. And e even where we're doing 3D, it's still like the best way to think of, of a lot of the VR stuff is that it's still kind of the, the equivalent of Toy Story. The things that we're going to make 30 years from now will probably be, you know, virtual cities um, or, you know, things of, of complexity that we can just barely understand in the same way that like, you look at Toy Story back in, I think it was 1996, and you go from Toy Story to, you know, Sp Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse, and it's it's not just night and day, it's this spectrum of growth that takes a long time to get to. Um, we Right now, we have these headsets that, you know, you can have a mobile processing and battery, and, and or you can run it on a PC, but... You know, you look back at, at VR, you know, like NASA's stuff, <laughs> the JPL, um, you know, back in the 80s. And it's these very clunky things with big wires. And it's basically just like, you know, it's it's broadcasting a, a, a simplified version of a TV onto your head. And it's not really doing any head tracking or, or you know, any haptics or any of that. We could just barely make a thing back then and and now we've got things where you can put something on your head and we can do hand tracking which is kind of magical um or you know like the quest 3 you can basically tap a button and you can go from looking at vr to looking at a pass-through camera with some distortion correction and you can go like okay let me double check the world around me we couldn't even imagine that, you know, like we have papers that talk about that from 92 that talk about like VR, virtual reality and augmented reality and mixed reality. But we have this really hazy notion of what mixed reality was. Um, what, what I will say lastly, just to wrap it up is that haptics is a good area where the most advanced haptics are actually in things like the PlayStation five controller. Um, it's, it's, it's doing like really finely detailed rumble in things like the Spider-Man 2 PlayStation 5 game. Um, there's a lot of actual mechanical miniaturization work that we need to do in haptics. Haptic gloves that are actually really good for giving you sensory feeling are probably like 50 years away because 
we need to create like little nano machines in there. Um, we, we focused on on the visuals more than anything. We have a bit more work to do in terms of 3D audio, but we're just starting to, to look at touch and hand tracking. And we don't even know how to do things like smell and taste. <laughs> so XR is very early. Maybe a good idea after all. Get, get Can you imagine, food. Sean, that, food, that, 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 that virtual pizza? I know. I know. <laughs> I'll leave that in the real one. Um, just a, a quick uh, thought. And I don't remember where I, when or where I picked this up, but I have this notion that at one point, all of this was going to be on systems, all of this, whatever it is we're talking about, stuff presented to us audio-visually would be on some systems in locations that we were going to, um, where you, you'd have a special wall that would give you these experiences. Um, it seems like we've taken a turn to, to we have, we're bringing the devices to, to us and, and wearing it on our head. Um, but remember last time, I think we talked about the sphere a bit in, in Las Vegas. And so I was just recalling that in, in the context of this. And as I thought at one point, you're going to go to places to experience things. Um, not necessarily inside an arena or an auditorium, but perhaps even just along, along the street. Right? Um, so I don't know. Do you see that still happening or? Um, not, not honestly, not so much. Um, so yeah, like I, I can, I can literally roll back in my head to where I was you know, back in the nineties had read snow crash, uh, somewhat recently, and I was working at Looking Glass on uh, on the Thief games, and we were doing early 3D, and we knew about how much we could do with 3D and kind of where that would go. And I would, you know, working in 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 Cambridge, would go from, you know, on the weekends into Cybersmith, and Cybersmith had you know, had a, a VR setup and you could go and you could, you know, put on a headset and you had a little kind of pod around you. Um, and, and there were times, you know, playing with that and thinking about what the future of VR would be. And this is probably about, oh, maybe 98. <laughs> um, and, you know, like playing with 3D glasses and there was a sense that VR was expensive and that, it would probably be a thing where you would go to a theater and that, you know, that like, I, I can literally remember having a dream about building VR games for, uh, for theaters and the notion that people would, people would go to either like a seated or standard pod and you'd have like a hundred people and my thought then was like, you know, it could get to the point where you could create a murder mystery and a hundred people could go into that and they'd all be milling around and it would be something like, you know, murder on the Orient Express, but everybody would, you know, go into the theater to experience a VR movie that they would get to live through together and that they would need to go into pods to do that because the electronics would be too expensive for everyone to have them at home. But that was before the days of, you know, that was when in the days of when laptops were, were you know, like weighed about as much as, as like a textbook. 
you know, like a biology textbook and where nobody had phones in their pockets. Now we have an expectation that the computing experience can eventually be brought down to where whatever it is, we can wear it, you know, an Apple watch, a phone in your pocket, a thing on your head, but there's an understanding and an expectation that there should be a consumer version of that thing that's probably somewhere between $400 and $1,000 that you can take home with you. That didn't used to be the case. You know, I back in the 80s, I went to an arcade and we had Battletech pods um, in Seattle and, you know, like four massive pods and they were like 10 feet long and you went and you sat in one and they were networked together on a custom network because that was how you could play a multiplayer thing. Now everyone's like, okay, I've got a few computers at home and a PS5 and an Xbox and a this and a that. And, you know, I've got a Steam Deck back there and a Switch downstairs. And you have, all, we're used to having all of these electronic devices that can do different ranges of things. We couldn't imagine that back in the 90s. You know, back then it was just like, yeah, we have computers, but like there's all this other stuff that you're going to have to go to a location because it's going to be so expensive that you'd never imagine you could have it at home. <laughs> and now we do. Now we do. And, I, and that's uh, one of those changes in society that I always try to talk about. Like, do is it still real? If we get together with people... Uh, in a virtual world, in the metaverse, and we interact with them with our own goggles, and we don't need to be physically together, is that really not good? Is that not real? Because my, my, my point is that it's real. If I'm doing it, either I'm doing it virtual or there, and my I'm having these emotions and feelings from a philosophical perspective, and psychological too for me is real a lot of people will disagree uh, in person and um, we can talk about events and all of that so i think this is a good conversation to to have uh longer than this because it's uh but it was interesting to reflect the moment in my head as i wrap this conversation the fact that there should be room for all of this we're always <laughs> presenting in a way that in a way that is just the new is coming and the old is going. And I think the new is coming and it's just layering up on the old. And then as we do ourselves, we just go back and feel nostalgic about a certain thing and we go to play pinball games at the arcade. And uh, yes, we could be doing a, a metaverse immersion and we're probably going to do both. Um, sometimes I may want to play with the, some music on a digital digitally and another time i'd rather hurt my fingers on on the bass <laughs> on the guitar so the good news is that there is all of this and, and the news many times is presented to oh this is the new and the old is going to disappear i i don't think so i hope yeah. not yeah and, and and that's the thing is you, you you make space for new experiences and we're still in many cases trying to understand how those fit together like um if I roll back to, let's say, 2008, um, you know, there, there's a point where uh, Guitar Hero and Rock Band 
as video game experiences were, were, were big, you know, playing with plastic instruments. Um, one of the things, and, and actually for a few years after that, one of the things I really love and, and, and I'd love to see it come back is one thing that Rock Band did really well, like it, 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 it's not that you're playing music, it's karaoke but it's it's a form of group karaoke um <clears throat> we would gather folks together and we would play rock band um and actually even into the last decade um where it becomes about this four four player living room karaoke where you know you can switch back and forth but you can basically go there's you know guitar bass drums and actually up to up to three mics as well um you know like i i loved playing um rock band beatles and singing beatles songs but the notion that we could at, that it could even track harmonies and that we could have three of us harmonizing together while we're trying to do a particular song and everybody can you know can kind of do it to their skill their own skill level this is part of what video games are starting to get into where you can go. It doesn't have to be just like run around and shoot things. There's new forms of play that we're constantly finding and being able to role play as the Beatles became one of them where, I mean, it's not like, you know, one person is George and one person is Ringo, but you go, we're going to role play doing a song together. And that becomes a new means of play and expression that wouldn't have been possible in that same way, you know, 10 or 20 years prior. We, we keep finding new ways. And, and like, so I'll, I'll throw something out there. Um, one area that I'd love to be able to go into, and I know that it's still fairly complex to get to, um, but one thing that's on, on my bucket list is um, immersive theater. Um, immersive theater would be a fantastic thing to take into games. Um, and I'm convinced it would work best in VR, but that we need time for the VR hardware market to grow. But if you think of immersive theater in San Francisco has the speakeasy and you know, New York and Chicago have others, the core notion of immersive theater, just to take that particular form of entertainment is to have a series of actors who are moving back and forth effectively like NPCs. Um, you know, you have the audience that are the player characters that have the agency to go around and observe. And then you have the NPCs, which are the actors. Um, and you have an expansive space for them to move around in. And the players don't know the story or necessarily where they can go and they need to explore and look around. Their agency is largely their movement. Um, they mostly can't go and they're not supposed to interact with the actors and change the story because that's a whole other level of thing. And, mm -hmm. but, and you know, the, the Star Wars Galactic Cruiser was trying to get into this, but it like that, that was pushing it into resort and, and hotel territory. But immersive theater is really just, let's have a complex nonlinear story for about two hours and let people explore it from any vantage point that they want to. That's a thing that can technically be done in games, but you need to have 
you need to run it on a server and you need to have ideally some amount of cloud support for running a lot of AIs at, at the same time. And it can be run in 3D, but it would be better in VR. And the tricky thing is that it's not really a game, it's entertainment, but that's an example to me of part of the future of entertainment is you have an interactive story that people can explore, whether it's something like immersive theater or you know, thinking back to the notion of people going into pods in the theater and going into a murder mystery, but you know, which is also kind of existence. If you remember David Cronenberg's and existence, having something that has branching and immersive or nonlinear narrative and allowing people to go into that is something that we're just on the cusp of being able to do because it needs to be a multiplayer experience. And a lot of our past multiplayer, whether it's like an MMO or an FPS is like, we can just barely render this stuff and do some really simple activity together, shoot each other or collect loot or you know whack things Diablo style. We're now getting to the point of where we can go, we can have some actors and we can mocap them and we can have complex situations and we can run 20 to 40 actors all at the same time that are all moving around and keep track of where they are. There's a lot of potential for virtual worlds, never mind like get into a massive virtual city, but just to go, can we have a nonlinear narrative and have people explore it? We couldn't do that before a few years ago. Yeah, I, I liken it to uh, the, the silent disco. We have multiple DJs feeding, up, let's say three DJs feeding, feeding three tracks. So you have different pockets of people in an area, each in their own space, presumably with each other. Um, everybody on red is listening to the same, bouncing at the same beat. Um, but I've been to one where they've they've actually planted people in to get people to dance and, and to do different things, um, do the train around or do the YMCA in a certain way or whatever. And so kind of a, that's the real world <laughs> version of that in my mind. Um, so it's not linear, right? But somebody's kind of controlling the scenes. You can come in and out of different scenes, interact with each other um, in that scene and then potentially others coming in and, and uh, making you feel and do different things so add, add the virtual virtual visual stuff on there and the, that sounds like what you just described sounds like nuts it is nuts <laughs> if you don't have a headset on you're like what the heck's going on beautifully nuts <laughs> Look, well, I, as, as you're presenting this theater and the, even now the the individualize and, yeah. You know, we talk about in the individual personalized finance. Everything is personalized. It sounds to me we're going to personalize entertainment, where you can choose exactly the one that you want. I'm wondering if what people will choose, if they will choose wisely, or <laughs> or not. And uh, I don't know. A lot to think oh, about. Yeah. So I, I'm going to call this off at 58 minutes. Um, I had some technology issue with the internet. And I'm wondering if I can even have a regular video and audio, how am I going to 
be in a virtual world and actually enjoy it 100% of the time. And now the question is, if you die in the virtual world, you actually die in the real world as well. You have to escape first before you die. Does it count? Do we have multiple lives, like in a video game? Play again? <laughs> you just have to collect one-up mushrooms. <laughs> uh, talk, talk to Mario. Talk to Mario. I'm going to leave you guys with with, uh, with an amusing uh, anecdote here. Okay. Um, Heineken back in uh, in spring 2022 at the height of kind of the the metaverse craze, um, and, and and this like shows that they were trying to understand it. They were making fun of it. They knew that this stuff was kind of half-baked. So they did a promotion in this thing called Decentraland, which was a you know kind of early Web3 thing that was still trying to find an audience. Um, so Heineken did this thing where, where they, they set up a promotion uh, for their Heineken Silver Brew. And, uh, and the tagline was that the metaverse is not the best place to taste a new beer. And so you could go into Decentraland and you could get a Heineken Silver and you could, you know, quote unquote, drink it. And they made fun of the fact that you couldn't actually drink it. <laughs> and, um, and, and their, their other tagline was um, no calories, no hidden ingredients and no beer. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they stressed that you could, you could go to the launch party and you could have pixelated lobster and caviar and you could have virtual beer. And they absolutely made fun of the fact that they were giving you a virtual beer that you could pretend to drink and that you could not taste at all. <laughs> but if you actually had to pay something for that non-beer, then, uh, <laughs> then they made something interesting. Or maybe even <laughs> co or collect a credit after right. you drink a virtual beer for a real beer yeah. at the store. That's another, yeah. that could be another marketing idea. You had to pay for a beer that you couldn't drink. Oh, <laughs> and that's going to be uh, the end of this. Everybody right. think about that. Go outside, take a walk, smell the flower, because they ain't going to be able to do that in the virtual world anyway. And uh, enjoy life, but also enjoy technology, because it's still life as well. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Raphael. Uh, thank you, Kerry. You, you really made a lot of sense today in this conversation. Uh, glad that <laughs> Kerry was on. He didn't say anything controversial. Well, well done. Kerry had some deep thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. As usual, we had a lot of fun. I hope you did as well. Stay tuned, subscribe, and share. Share with other people if you enjoy this and leave us comment maybe to talk about this. Uh, any other time because sometimes we don't know what to talk about and then we ended up talking for an hour two minutes so <laughs> goodbye there take care go. everybody Good night. Good night. Indeed. devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises the devo data analytics platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation learn more at Devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, 
and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.